Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. The journey on foot all the way across America was kind of my apprenticeship to actually finding out what a life can become if one is listening first. I like to walk. It's a great way to relax, be outdoors, to breathe in the fresh air, and maybe even to listen to a podcast like this one. My guest on the Sidcast today had a similar idea, but when he set out to walk, he kept going all the way across the country. He encountered all sorts of people and situations, and most of all, well, he encountered himself. Just graduated from college, not ready to go on a standard route to a job, dealing with the legacy of a parent's divorce, and like many young people trying to figure out who he was and what his purpose is, Andrew Forstoffel went for this walk. And he wrote about it in his book, Walking to Listen. Talking to someone who's all about listening is actually a lot of fun. There are no interruptions, at least from him. And the answers are thoughtful and on point. But what he has to say and share is something just about all of us have gone through, trying to make sense of his journey, of our journey. I've talked to several people on the Sidcast who shared their journey from place to place, job to job, and experience to experience. Tim Pearson went from Air Force officer during the Iraqi war to special ops, to working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, to a management consultant at McKinsey, to a hedge fund manager, and now is actually a computer scientist. All that in episode 11, if you want to listen. Andrew Forstoffel is different because he's at the beginning of his journey. And without benefit of experience, he decided to do something. That's kind of crazy. Walk across the country. Why did he do it? What did his parents and friends say? How does someone set out to walk across the country? I mean, how do you actually do that? What do you eat? Where do you go? Where do you sleep? Was he lonely? Was he happy? What did he learn? I was just so curious to talk to Andrew and ask him all of this and much more. And now you have a chance to listen in on that conversation on the Sidcast. Welcome to the Sidcast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and it's an absolute pleasure to uh, be spending the next hour or so with uh, Andrew uh, Forstoffel. Hey, Andrew, welcome. Hey. Great to have you here in beautiful Hanover, New Hampshire. And you have walked a lot, yes. <laughs> as in from the East Coast or close to the East Coast, right? Yep. All the way to the West Coast. And when did you do this? I began October 14th, 2011, and it ended up being about a year that I was walking all the way across America, starting outside Philadelphia, getting down to New Orleans, and then finishing in Half Moon Bay, California. That's a nice place, Half Moon Bay, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> How many states did you go through? I think it was 15 15. I touched 15 with my feet. Okay, well, why did you do this? Let's start with that. Yeah, yeah. I had just graduated from Middlebury College, and I had this sort of overwhelming sense that something more was available to me, just as a living, breathing human being. I didn't know what that meant at the time, uh-huh. and I slowly began to find out that it had something to do with connecting with other people in a more authentic, real, human, vulnerable just rich way. You didn't feel that as a student or you didn't um, want to keep it going? I would say that I maybe had tastes of it, but the way I think about it now is that that kind of human heart-to-heart connection wasn't prioritized by the institutions I attended. I think it was sort of that kind of like human connection was mm-hmm. sort of secondary to the material that was being prioritized. And so those communication tools, and this is what I've learned on this walk, I had a sign that said I was walking to listen. 
And that was the sign of the back on, on your back that I wore on my backpack yeah. instead of walking to listen. And it became clear that my understanding of what listening, deep, trustworthy listening actually was, uh, was quite limited. And therefore, my ability to do it was also sort of limited. And the journey on foot all the way across America was kind of my apprenticeship to actually finding out what a life can become if one is listening first. Did you apply for jobs when you were graduating, like normal jobs? I applied for the Watson Fellowship, which is a fellowship that grants its fellows $25,000 to pursue a project of their own design abroad somewhere, not in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get past the first round, but what the process of applying for it did was it clarified for me that I had these questions that I wanted mm -hmm. to pursue more about. And I kind of focused them, what I was saying earlier about like, there, certainly there must be more available to me when it comes to connecting with others and with myself. I channeled that question into the topic of coming of age. If being an adult means being able to understand other people mm -hmm. and empathize with and connect deeply with other people, then I'm not quite a fully realized adult if I can't do that. You know? What? Yeah. So I designed this project that would help me explore coming of age in hmm. indigenous communities, hmm. figuring, okay, I experienced my culture's best attempt at a coming of age ritual. In some sense, you can conceptualize the college journey as a four year coming of age ritual. And it left me where I'm at, loaded with so many gifts and privileges and information, but still kind of questioning. And so, what would happen if I went to a totally different scene? and see hmm. how they might conceptualize and, it. And that was that, that Watson program? That, that was that was the my proposal for the Watson Fellowship. I didn't get the fellowship, yeah. but I had awakened into a kind of a passion that I wanted to pursue anyways. Uh -huh. And so eventually the walk became a way of asking those very questions, not to people in indigenous communities or halfway around the globe, but to each and every person I would meet. Mm -hmm. That that was sort of the idea is I'm going to walk to listen. I'm going to ask people my heart's questions. And it's hard to ask one of your heart's questions, maybe, because it's going to reveal something vulnerable about you. You know, it's going to reveal where you might not know something, which can be hard to share with somebody. But I wanted to try. Yeah. You know, yeah. So see everyone as a teacher. Uh, I definitely want to ask, we'll ask you what those questions were, but I, I still want to understand mm. kind of what that must have felt like to head off in this journey. Your friends were not doing this. Yeah. Your yeah. friends were going to, I don't know, to banks for all I know, or consulting right. or right. graduate school or right. some such thing. And what did they say to you? Yeah. I didn't speak with too many of them about it. I think partially because, you know, to do something so aberrant in a way, mm -hmm. so unusual, that can be a fragile thing, I think. Mm -hmm. And if you encounter someone who's really suspicious of it or doubtful of it, that might sway you, you know? So I think I was in that state of, mm -hmm. listen, I know my heart is calling for me to do this, but it doesn't make sense. And I can't really totally explain it. And yeah, I'm not getting paid. You know, right. and at the time there was no book, there was no, you know, book talk or anything mm -hmm. like that, but I felt that call. And so I didn't, yeah, I didn't talk with too many people about it, but the ones I did speak with were encouraging. And, and so what did it feel like? I mean, it, it was totally, I mean, I remember the first day packing a backpack full of what you think you might need to mm -hmm. walk across America. You've never done it before. You don't know what you're going to need, but you're thrown in there. What you On think a you scale might. of one to 10, how accurate were you in that pack? I was actually pretty good. I, I, had you done backpacking? And I had done some, nothing at all like this. Sure. But I had done some hiking, some camping. And yeah, packed more than I needed. My, my backpack was probably 50 pounds. Wow, that's yeah, a lot. It was heavy. 
And eventually I started somewhere in Texas, you know, six months in, I started pushing the backpack in a baby stroller. <laughs> this is so heavy. That'll get you even more attention. Uh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> at that point, the walking to listen sign was even bigger, you know? Yeah. But yeah, to set out into the unknown, totally unsure of what's to come, but entirely sure that I was on my life's songline. I was in my, you could say destiny, that could be esoteric or confusing, but I just knew that I was where I was supposed to be, even if it didn't necessarily match with what culture was telling me I ought to be doing at that time. So I could imagine the conversation with your parents would have been interesting as well. Yeah, of course. What was that like? Well, my both were very supportive in their own ways. Yeah. You know, Dad's support was like, he was surprised, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of like, and talk to like, him wow. about this dream that you had. Yeah, it all kind of, it did, it, it had been gestating for many years, but then uh-huh. it kind of, the form of it arrived. And you felt that, I like what you say, you felt compelled, you just had to do that. I had to do this. Which, thing. you know, I talked to lots of people on the SIDCast and yeah. some of them are entrepreneurs. It's what yeah. they tell me. Yeah. They had yeah. to do it. And yeah. Yeah. they didn't want to get talked out of it, but they didn't think they could get talked out of it. Mm, You're a little cool. bit different in that yeah. regard in that you kept kind of a close counsel. But anyway, back yes. to your, your dad. So what did he say? Dad was supportive in his own way. So I, eventually I, I did write a book about this walk. And in writing the book, I began to really ask myself, like, if I had to put words to really explaining the why of it, but, mm-hmm. but really why? And tell me more, but like, why? I was able to trace it back to my relationship with my dad Mm. and the disintegration of my family when I was 15 years old. My parents' divorce Mm. and the the trauma of that, the pain of that, and the ways that that pain sort of initiated me into the great existential questions that every human gets to ask Mm -hmm. and that maybe most of us avoid asking at all costs because it's uncomfortable. That's exactly (laughs) right. Why do we exist and what are we doing on our time on earth? Yeah, I don't want to ask that. Most people do not like to ask. And many people go through their whole lives quite happily not asking that. And sometimes when you ask that a lot, you go a little crazy. Because it's not an easy thing to figure out. And if you ask it alone, you can go crazy. I mean, we need to be supported in really, truly living these questions because they do take us to the edge of what we know. And because, you know, we have in some ways been culturally trained to be afraid of the unknown. What we do when we're in that state of fear that is triggered by the unknown can look like craziness. And so we need to be supported by a close council of people, you know. But that pain and the gift of that pain when I was 15 years old... Hmm eventually manifested as this undeniable, really unstoppable Mm -hmm. urge to ask these questions, live these questions, walk these questions, and be transformed by the doing of that. Why do you think, you know, why do you think, Andrew, you went that way? Because a lot of kids have parents that divorce. Half the population, unbelievably, I think. And in their own way, they all deal with trauma and they deal with it. And then sometimes it's a quote unquote, a happier situation. It's not exactly right, but people get along. And other times it's, you know, really terrible. And you have a a dad that doesn't speak to the kids anymore and things like that. But you took it in a particular way. And I mean, you probably weren't, you know, you said in the writing of the book, you kind of were able to figure this out and articulate it, but it wasn't clear. Am I right about that? Yeah, you wouldn't I, been I, able to tell someone, yeah. okay, this is it, and this is going to make me go in this direction because yeah. of what happened to me. Yeah. What I hear you asking is, you know, why or how did I take the path and the crossroads that eventually has led to a more constructive experience? You know, the cultivation of wisdom from pain, the cultivation of love from pain, as opposed to shutting down in bitterness and resentment and hate of my dad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So why? Yeah. I'll tell you why. I mean, the first, I was 15, 
and for probably certainly two or three years with great intensity, but probably up until I was 23 years old when I began my walk mm-hmm. and things started to shift, I did hate my dad. You did? Yeah, I, I carried that in me. You know, I carried that. You resentment. blamed him for the I blamed breakup. him. I wasn't willing to listen or didn't know how or wasn't mature yet enough mm-hmm. to be able to listen deeply to mm-hmm. his human experience that led to the decisions he made and to whatever it was my parents were experiencing that led to that. So how was it that I eventually was able to take a different path? I would say is just simply by paying attention to the effects of carrying that kind of hatred inside me. I mean, eventually, this was after my walk. There was a period when I wasn't saying to him, I love you, mm-hmm. you know? Like, we'd be talking on the phone, and, and he would say, all right, goodbye, I love you, Andrew, you know? God bless him, by the way, for just hanging in there with it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Good for him, thank God. Because he didn't have to do that. He could have reciprocated my own defensive No, he didn't, he didn't have to do that. And obviously, I, I don't know him at all, but I am a parent. Uh, uh. And I can't imagine not saying that and going there, uh-huh. no matter what happens. Mm. And not every parent does that. I understand that. Yeah. But I can't imagine anything otherwise. That's beautiful. And beautiful. hopefully it gets reciprocated. Luckily, in my case, it has been. I have a wonderful daughter. Nice. And I love her. And yeah. she loves me. And she has a great life, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But your dad was doing that. Yeah, he wasn't turning away even though I was, you know. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I, yeah, like on the phone, I love you, Andrew, goodbye. And I would just say, okay. You'd said, okay. You yeah, I would just, I, I wouldn't respond. I wouldn't re- respond. How long did that go on? Maybe you'd have to ask him, <laughs> you know. He, maybe he kept more. But you, yours is what I'm getting. Yeah, some, some time, you yeah, know. Yeah, I, yeah. So eventually, I started coming back around and realizing, I actually do love this man, and mm-hmm. it's complicated, mm-hmm. and he's my dad, and I love this guy. Yeah. Eventually, I had a friend who told me that he couldn't imagine anything worse than for his son, his baby son at the time, to grow up only to hate him. And so I called dad after that and said, hey, I know you know I love you, you know, and this may be obvious, but I just want to say it anyways. I don't hate you. You know, I want you to, <laughs> may seem obvious, but I just, I don't hate you, dad. I want, before you die, I want you to hear me say those words. I, I love you. We've got that down, but like, I don't hate you. And what he said to me was, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Certainly for me, but mostly for you. That's a wise uh, statement, you know? isn't it? Yeah, because for you to be walking around carrying that hatred, whether it's of me or of anyone, is ultimately harming you most mm-hmm. of all. You know, that's like you're walking around carrying bleach in your liver. You know, you're carrying some kind of poison mm-hmm. in your heart. And sure, it sucks for the people who you're projecting that hatred upon, but most of all, it's it's you who's <laughs> who's carrying that, you know? So I'm, I'm happy for you that you're able to get to that point with yourself, is what he said to me. So back to your question of, of why or how was I able to eventually begin relating to my dad and to that wound in my life in a more constructive way? Mm-hmm. Because I think I just simply paid attention to the effects of the alternative. The effects of the alternative were I suffer from the pain of closing down, uh, shutting off my heart, mm-hmm. of judging someone, of hating someone. You know, that's is doing nothing, nothing good for me and certainly not for my world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea of forgiving people yeah. is part of multiple religions yeah. for good reason, right. but it could be really hard uh, to do that. Yeah. And I really didn't, it wasn't hard. a choice in some ways. I think forgiveness is sort of a mystery, like how forgiveness happens. Sometimes it's like the intention to forgive isn't even there. And then it's by grace, you know, maybe I get around to getting to a point where I say, okay, I, I have this intention to forgive. Mm-hmm. 
but the intention doesn't make that happen. You That's know? right. Intention is not the same as action. They're yeah, different. but even and even action. Sometimes it's like sometimes I'm just not ready to forgive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't I don't know how it happens. It's sort of what I'm saying, and and something about this walk, and maybe it was that I was spending so much time alone, mm-hmm. and I got to really be with the grief from that time in my life when my mm-hmm. my family split up. I was no longer distracted from it. I didn't have school to go to or, or my summer job to do or TV to watch or whatever. Right. It's like you're alone, mm-hmm. you're on the road, and you're going to meet whatever's inside you out there. And that's a good thing. And, yeah, it's going to mean you're going to cry. You know I mean? <laughs> were you crying as you oh, were walking? Yeah, yeah. I got to be with the full spectrum of myself. Mm-hmm. So the grief, the loneliness, the ecstasy, the joy, the surprise, the terror. All of it. You know, I I think what was happening out there for me, and perhaps this has to do with coming of age and becoming an adult, is maybe it doesn't just have to do with one's ability to connect with the full spectrum of others, you know, in all of their pettiness and beauty and just their humanity, Mm -hmm. but perhaps has something to do with, yeah, being in some ways wed to the full spectrum of whoever it is Mm -hmm. you are. And that, to me, was something I was kind of forced to do or forced myself to do unwittingly it's like okay if you're going to choose to walk across america there's probably going to be a lot of alone time on the road out there but i didn't know what that would open up for me mm-hmm. and it began to basically just i think it was the beginning of wedding myself in a way or if that is confusing language you could say the beginning of becoming my own best friend you weren't afraid when you set off oh, i certainly was you were afraid. oh yeah i was excited I was relieved that I was following this call. That you're actually, you're actually doing it. Yeah. Because you may have exactly. had this and maybe for years, if you hadn't gone that path, maybe you'd forget about it a period yeah. of time, but then you'd wonder. And wondering. Yeah. And that wondering is a tough, is a tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Andrew, I want to talk about nuts and bolts. I want to about food. How'd you eat? Where'd you eat? You must have had some money with you. Uh, how'd this all work kind of yeah. on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, yeah. Well, I budgeted $4,000 for the journey and... Figured I would walk until either I ran out of money or until I got to some mysterious point, who knows where, mm-hmm. where I just kind of... You had enough. I had enough, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Or, you know, had some kind of Forrest Gumpian epiphany. You know what I mean? Like, Did oh, you watch that movie? I think I got it. Yeah. yeah. Just before you'd watch it as a kid? Uh, as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many people said, are you Forrest Gump? A lot. They did. And my last name is Forrest Stoffel. So Forrest. Forrest, you know of I mean? course. And that's... they would speak about <laughs> Forrest Gump as if he were a, a real human being. It was very funny. That's how good that movie was. Yeah. Well, and there's also, I mean, there's also a bit of a, although not a lot of people are walking across America, there is a contingent of us who have and who are. You met other people doing something similar. I met two men who were walking across America while I was. They were walking west to east and we literally crossed paths. And that's a random thing. You a random know. thing. We didn't plan for that. Or, that's know. really random. So they're out there. We're out there, you know? And I think the more the better. So how'd you eat? Yeah, so I had a food bag just full of the basics, you know, granola bars, oatmeal, salami, you know, peanut butter and jelly. But because I was walking exclusively on the roads... And the reason for that was I wanted to meet as many different kinds of Americans as possible. Mm-hmm. Figured if I was on the trails, it would be just kind of a sort of a certain kind of person. Wanted to meet the great diversity of America. So I was on the roads, which meant I was passing through towns just about every day. Yeah. And so I would often go into a diner. And at first I was pretty 
stingy with my money and frugal and I'm, you know, keeping it under the budget. But what became clear eventually was that when people heard what I was doing, when Mm -hmm. I told them what I was doing, they would connect deeply with it for their own reasons and for Mm -hmm. who knows why, but they would connect with it. And not only would we often get to that deep heart space where we're sharing vulnerably and authentically with one another Mm -hmm. about our human experiences, but they would also sometimes take me into their home. I, who had been a perfect stranger to them just moments before, suddenly they're they're saying, come, stay with us tonight, or you can camp out on the, on the lawn, or um, we'll put you up at the fire station or in the church, you know, or at the alligator ranch, you know, down in Louisiana, or the mariachi radio station in Texas, you know, all these different places, all these different kinds of people suddenly showing up to me in a way I never would have had the audacity to dream was mm-hmm. possible and mm-hmm. certainly didn't expect. Yeah. And I ended up spending over the course of that year less than a thousand dollars. Really? Because people would not only support me in these ways, but they would also just give me money. Mm. I would never solicit money, but there was one guy in South Carolina who zoomed by me on his little moped and saw me walking and I sort of stood out. You know, I'm I'm wearing a backpack, I have this American flag on one side and an earth flag on another, and I have the walking to listen sign. Mm-hmm. So I'm it's like, what's this guy doing? You know? Yeah. And some people were really, their curiosity was, was picked by that. And he stopped, he came back around and he's a guy, he's missing a few teeth. You know, he's wearing a bandana. Mm-hmm. He, he's looking kind of ragged, you know? And, um, he asked me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm walking across America, listening to people. And he goes, is that all you're doing? <laughs> go, like what's the catch? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I go, yeah. He goes, you getting paid? You're not getting paid or anything like that. I go, not in money, you know? And he goes, I love you. Here, take this. And he reached into his pocket and gave me three crumpled up $1 bills. Which he probably didn't have a lot of. Yeah, exactly. And at at first I I was reluctant to take it. But what I began to learn on this journey is when someone gifts you, when someone offers you a gift in that way, and it's a gift, Mm -hmm. no one's compelling them or manipulating them Mm -hmm. into giving that. When they give that to you, there is, I've come to believe, a responsibility to receive that. I think it is a way of saying to someone, you know, like, you have gifts to give. You know, you have gifts to give this world. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. And it has nothing to do with money at all. You have gifts to give. A friend of mine who I, was walk, who I went to college with, when I was telling her what was happening on this walk and the ways that people were finding the parts of themselves, the better angels, you might mm. call them, you know, the finding within themselves the capacity for generosity, even if they didn't necessarily have money like this guy, finding within themselves the capacity for trust, mm-hmm. you know, to entrust some of their vulnerable stories with me or to take me into their home. And so my friend said, you know, you're kind of like the anti-NGO. <laughs> anti-NGO. <laughs> in, in, in the sense that like... Non-governmental you know, organization. Yeah, she was saying like an NGO will go to another country or to a place proposing to give them something that the NGO thinks they don't have. Mm-hmm. Now, you are going, you, Andrew, in your walk, are going to these places and rendering yourself uh, totally vulnerable and, and in some ways dependent. If you are placing yourself in a state of need, you need these people, the people that you're walking through, not just to teach you something about life, but to give you directions and ensure that you're, you don't die on this journey. So you, you are saying to these people, hey, we need you. I need you. And so she, this, she was sort of making a joke about yeah. it, but there's some truth there's to it. There's some truth to that. Yeah. yeah. I like what you said about accepting a gift 
when it's given in the type of way you just described. Yeah. Uh, no matter what that gift is, it could be as simple as a compliment. Exactly. I kind of learned that lesson in a totally different context mm-hmm. a long, long mm-hmm. time ago mm-hmm. when I, I get compliments and I, I feel so uncomfortable. Right. I didn't like it. Right, right, right. Uh, like for schoolwork or something. I mean, yeah. a professor, so you get lots of compliments for schoolwork. It's uh-huh. probably the only thing you can do. So uh-huh. there you go. But over time, you you realize it's something that they just want to do that and they feel good doing that. Yeah, yeah. And all you have to do is say thank you. Yes. That's all you got to say. Yeah. So you met, you must have met a lot of people. So yes. uh, who's the youngest person you met? There were some families who took me in who had children. They know. asked questions, the kids, or they just kind of did their own thing? Um, playing and connecting with the children was, I think, one of the highlights of the experience. But the person who's coming to mind now, the the youngest person who I think I had a sort of like sustained and deeply, it had a big impact on me, was this young man I met out in the Navajo Nation who was a white boy like me, you know, walking through the reservation. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of surprised because I didn't often encounter walkers on the mm-hmm. highway. And in Navajo Nation, I didn't encounter many white people. Mm-hmm. And eventually I, I caught up with this guy who was ahead of me and he was convinced at some level that he was the Messiah for the Hopi people. He had heard of some mm-hmm. sort of prophecy mm-hmm. that had surely been scrambled that said that there was some sort of savior figure that would come from the East and he, he'd be this white guy. He thought it was him. And he thought maybe it was him. And so... I got to apply this practice, I think now, of walking to listen as a practice, or you can call it, I've been calling it trustworthy listening, you know? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for you to be trustworthy for another human being, mm-hmm. you know? What do you have to be remembering about them to get you into a state of trustworthiness such that they would feel respected and dignified by your presence, mm-hmm. you know? And then what becomes possible in that space with two human beings is what I think will help us transform this world into a more beautiful place. So here I am, boots on the ground with this kid. Of course, I'm getting triggered by what he's saying. (laughs) You know, my mind is, the triggers would be, you freaking racist kid. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, you think you're the savior? You crazy, what are you, psychotic? You fool, you idiot, you dumb. All those things are going on in your head instantly. Of course, yeah, all the judgments, you know? All the judgments. So what I was trying to do and what I tried to do all the way across America with this practice is see those judgments and trust that they may have something to offer, sure, but not let them run the show, you know, and remember that underneath the kid's delusion, because surely there is such a thing as delusion. (laughs) I think surely this kid had delusions about Mm. who he was and what this prophecy is. But that underneath the delusion is a kernel of humanity that is worth listening to and relating to. What did, um, what did you ask him? Just simple stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, okay, in- interesting. You, this is what you think you are. And, well, where are you coming from, man? And how'd you get here? And he goes, you know, no one really wants to, he said something like, you know, most people don't really want to hear a whole lot about this because they just think I'm crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I got to find out about his family and about his parents' divorce, mm-hmm. you know, and about going to art school and about not fitting in. I just started to see this picture of a human being who hadn't been really deeply seen and acknowledged in the way that he was longing to be. And in the way that I think we all long to be seen, acknowledged, mm-hmm. respected, dignified, you know? And so it's in some ways, it's like, of course, he's going to, if he doesn't know how to ask for that kind of help, mm-hmm. if he doesn't have the self-awareness to mm-hmm. recognize that that's 
that he's not getting what he needs and deserves as a human being, of course he's going to find some crazy way of asking for it, like thinking he's the Messiah, in which case he'll certainly be recognized and seen. Yes. You know, so, so I was... that's just, what was behind that. That's, that's, what, that's what I think got. was behind it. And eventually I, I saw him again uh, a few days later, and he had spent some time in the desert at this point because he had just gotten off the bus when I first saw him. And he was now sort of filled with doubt about his conviction that mm. he was the, the Messiah and he was sunburned and he had suffered a little bit out there, mm -hmm. you know? And I asked him, I was like, uh, said, you missing anything, man? You missing anyone back home? Or, And he said, uh, nah, but you, you know what I do miss, man, is I, I miss my childhood. And then he started to weep. Mm-hmm we were able to get a little closer to that place of what's really going on here, you know? But you can't force those things out of people, which is why I think of trustworthy listening as just becoming an invitation. I can become an invitation to enter into that heart space with another person, but I can never force anybody there. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what this is about. And we got to experience a little bit of it, but it just got me thinking, you know, about how many of us, and this is a part of what I am so sort of... Uh, fired up about today is yeah. realizing that there's kind of a great, there's a famine of listening, you know, you could call it, or a drought of trustworthy listening, mm -hmm. you know, that, and we're all very thirsty to be not just listened to, I think, but to be allowed into mm -hmm. the, the sacred heart of another human being. But there's this drought that's going on. And um, most of us, many of us, I think, aren't listening and relating to other people in this way isn't championed in our culture, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's not, I don't think, prioritized or explicitly. But also many people taught. will just resist it. Yeah. They're not comfortable yes. going there, especially, I was about to say, especially with someone they don't know, but sometimes you sure. tell the deepest truths to people you don't know because yeah. it's it's right, so much safer. Right, right. Yeah. But not everyone, I would say, and then we have our, our public faces and we go to work and we do what we, what right. we do. And I've always been struck at the difference between how people behave at mm. home in their everyday lives mm -hmm. and how they behave at work. Right. And they put up with things at work that in their everyday life they never they never would. And that's one of the biggest problems with work, actually, mm -hmm. because you have to subjugate your person. And it's not always that people force you to do that. There's some of that, but it's often you self-discipline that way. Mm -hmm. And so you put up with a hierarchy that exists with the boss and the boss's mm -hmm. boss and all the rest. Right. And there is a power structure that yeah. uh, exists. Now at home, there's also a power structure of sorts, but it's very, it's different. What if we rejiggered and transformed our understanding of what power really is? You know, I think in the way that we typically understand it, power means I have the ability to make you do something you may not want to do. You know, I have the ability to manipulate reality and turn it into what I want it to be. To me, I'm more interested now in a paradigm of power that has to do with <laughs> has to do with listening, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, what if you were so powerful that you didn't need to change somebody? What if you were so powerful that you could be, really be with someone in their pain and that didn't trigger you into your own pain? What if you were so powerful that you could really deeply listen to somebody and choose to shine the spotlight on them instead of doing this dance of me, 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 you know? So it's, uh, you know, what we're talking about here, I think, ultimately is a transformation of our culture. And I have no idea, like, <laughs> how we're going to get there. But I actually do have one idea. And I, and I think, and it's, it's simple and it's certainly nothing new, but it'll sound probably unsatisfying. But I think it has to start here and now. And it's not the obligation, the responsibility 
doesn't rest on any one person's shoulders or any one small group of mm -hmm. people's shoulders, the ministers, the therapists, the social workers. No, it has to be all of us, you know, who are showing up to each and every moment of our lives. I think of it like each and every one of my moments, I'm the caretaker of that moment. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not providing that water of listening, that water of the intention to connect and understand somebody, then who else is? Who's going to do it? If, yeah. if I shrug my duties and my life and my moment, no one else is going to do it for me. And if we were all showing up that way in the here and now to one another and to the full spectrum of ourselves, things couldn't help but change. But in order to convince people that that's something they should commit themselves to, we have to, I think, tell a more compelling story about power. We have to tell a story about power that is more convincing than the one we're currently living there are two primary ways to uh, create a social movement, which is a little bit about what you're talking about. One is top down, one is bottom up. Mm -hmm. Top down, you have leaders and you have infrastructures, you have systems, mm -hmm. or you have this guy who thinks he's the Messiah. Right. And they tell a compelling story and they convince, try to convince people. And when you talk about leaders in organizations or in countries, they have a lot of other tools they can use in terms of structure, in terms of incentives, in terms of setting the mission and purpose of any organization. And that method, you know, you look in history, you have Gandhi, he did it. And that was, I don't know actually if he would have called it top down as opposed to bottom up, but he was, certainly was that representative. Yeah. You're talking about bottom up where each one of us could do something Maybe a little bit different every now and then. Yeah. And things that I do, which are related to leadership in organizations, mm. many people ask me, I preach in my own way, mm. things that I've learned from my research mm. on what makes for better or worse leaders, how to mm. be more effective in organizations, mm. how to accomplish more, how to create more meaning out of your life and out of the life of the people around you. And the most typical reaction is, well, you know, I, I get that, I buy that, but my boss, my boss, boss, they don't, yeah. that won't work. Yeah. And I usually say, they don't always like it. Well, that's an excuse. Hmm. I know that's true, but that doesn't stop you. You have agency over yourself. Hmm. And in a practical way in an organization, if you're a manager, you have people that report to you or work with you. If you do some of these things that you think will help other people get better, that will help you get better, that will do things that would make for a more meaningful job and a, and a more effective organization. You can do that in your unit and your team. And turns out everyone wants to know about it when you're successful. Hmm. They don't want to know about the failures too much. Hmm. But if you have, if this works then all of a sudden people start to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. So I actually do believe this kind of grassroots approach yeah. is possible, but it needs a lot of adherence. It needs yeah. a lot of it's people that want to try that. Yes. You did meet a lot of people. You shared a little bit, but you've learned a lot. You end up writing a book about this. Yeah. What are some of the experiences you had, whether it was talking to someone, listening to someone, or even being by yourself that led mm -hmm. to some of the deepest learning that you mm -hmm. had? The first thing that came to mind is some of the experiences I had alone out West and beginning to realize and trust that I didn't have to hide from any part of myself or from any particular emotion that I had the capacity. In the same way that I had the capacity to walk, you know, 30 miles in a day, I could be with, in some ways, anything and everything. That, I think, is, is the first thing. But then I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, like, other people I met or, mm. you know, someone who really really changed me, upped the ante for me. Um, yeah, this woman, Emma Lou Daly, a black woman in Alabama, 91 years old mm. when I met her, and she was in the hospital at the time. How did, how did you meet her in the first place? The pastor of this little town took me in, and I was connecting with his family, and 
They said, well, if you're listening to people, you got to meet the most interesting person in Monroe County. That's what he and said. This is Emily uh, Daly. Okay. Yeah. And this is a white family, and she's an African-American woman, and they had this relationship. And she was 91, so born in the 1920s, I think, and had experienced all kinds of oppression that I'll never be able to understand, really, as a white man living in the 2000s. And she was a sharecropper. And so I got to listen to her. And it was interesting because she, she didn't have many people in her life at that time. She never had children her husband, Moses, had died. And from what I gathered, she was largely on her own. And it struck me that we had a national treasure here. And she ought to have lines of people just waiting to hear anything that she wanted to share or mm -hmm. say. And yet here she was alone. Again, an interesting reflection of our culture's values and who we prioritize and give attention to, you know. But I got to be with her. I got to listen to her. And man, I got to sing with her, literally. You know, we sang Amazing Grace together. Wow. And um, she was just this living embodiment of, we were talking about forgiveness earlier. Mm -hmm. She was this living embodiment of mercy, compassion, and kindness. Mm -hmm. And surely, you know, lived through all kinds of hatred in herself of the white people who were oppressing her, of the men who maybe oppressed her, you know, like all these experiences. I'm not saying she was some impeccable paragon of godliness. And yet, in her twilight years, she was, I could just feel she didn't have any hatred in her. And to be with a black woman in southern Alabama who had liberated herself from that hatred. I mean, if, if there's anyone in the world who's justified in hating, it probably would have been Miss Emily Daly. You know what I mean? If hatred is ever justifiable, it perhaps would be justifiable so in what, her life. So what did she but say? But she didn't, she chose not to. What did she yeah. say to you that gave you this kind of feeling about her? It was nothing fancy, you know? Yeah. It was nothing philosophical. It was just kind of matter of fact and simple, you know? My parents always said, you can't hate them, you gotta love them. Mm. So I choose to love them. That's what she said? Yes. And I, re I was recording her. So you can listen to this. I, I, when I finished my walk, I made a, a radio documentary with Jay Allison about this. And Miss Emma Lou is the sort of the feature mm -hmm crown jewel and i encourage you to check it out on this american life we'll add it to our yeah. show notes yeah but her voice and you, you can just kind of feel the wavelength that she was operating at and it, it just didn't have any bitterness or hatred in it mm -hmm. she was free and so it she showed me what was possible i was like dang okay a human being can achieve this kind of yeah. liberation of, of, of heart and mind. Did you call your father before or after this? Because you were telling that story earlier yeah. about forgiveness. Yeah, him. yeah. Stuff started to soften for me around him not long after I met Emma Lou. Mm -hmm. I would say somewhere in New Orleans stuff. I started to realize, oh my God, like I, yeah, I need my dad. I don't want to pretend I don't. And similarly, the Navajo people upped the ante for me. Again, if any human being is ever justified in mm -hmm. hating it would be perhaps the native population here who were butchered and deceived and eradicated or attempted. And uh, when I walked through their land as a white man, proposing to listen, though, really listen for their, not just their people's story, but for the, the unique story that the individual, individual was living, they chose to open themselves to me and to welcome me in. Did it take a little bit of time for them to kind of wonder, what's this guy doing here? Honestly, I mean, it would be, be kind of very rational 
to be a little careful, especially in the light of, of history, course. but even in, even independently of that. Yeah. Who is this guy? Yeah. Well, I, I certainly can't speak for them and, and I don't want to lump them into a monolith, but I will say that in general, there was a sort of an immediate receptivity and mm-hmm. hospitality to who I was and what I was trying to do. Yeah. Uh, a recognition of what I was trying to do. Would you say that that was generally the case? I'm sure some interactions weren't wonderful when you're on the road for that long yeah. and you bump into people, right? Yeah, I, I definitely bumped into resistance and people who didn't believe what I was doing or had their various projections and judgments of who I was. And, yeah. But what I found was that trying to live, doing what I could to operate at that wavelength, at that Emma Lou Daly wavelength of... I'm not here to hate or judge, even if I am hated or judged. Operating at that wavelength is a transformative thing, and it has a strong effect on the people who find themselves in the presence of that wavelength <laughs> in the same way that Emma Lou transformed me. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be walking with this intention to be open and to see with the eyes of beauty, mm-hmm. to see you with the eyes of beauty, to see you as beautiful, to see you as in these ways. And it's hard I think it's like the light kind of helplessly illuminates the darkness. Martin Luther King said something like that. He was like, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Mm. Hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. And in the same way that when you shine a light in the dark, it's light. I think there was, when I was at my best and when I was connected to that intention to listen, which is ultimately a connection to love, I found that it was hard for most people to resist that and stay in the story of separation. What did you do when you came back? How'd you keep this kind of momentum going? I think of it as a, yeah, I mean, just with me in my personal practice of listening, I think that's exactly what it is. It's a practice in the same way that you have a jogging practice or a meditation practice. It's something that I have to intentionally commit myself to, Mm -hmm. and it never stops. Mm. Each and every moment, there is something or someone to be listened to. And I don't just mean sort of like, when I say listened to, I mean, there, there is something or someone to be connected with and to understand, you know. And then more logistically, I'm at a phase now where I am do more speaking. I'm beginning to speak at colleges, universities about my book and about what the walk taught me. And I'm beginning to teach also, finding ways to teach what I learned, the, the communication skills and the, I mean, you could even call it a spiritual practice, you know, of letting this way of being yeah. change not just you but the people you're around i mean it's interesting you use the word spiritual because that's the word in the back of my head listening to you yeah. in the same way that mindfulness is spiritual right. in a fundamental yes. way yes. And you mentioned meditation and some right. other thing i think what you're adding is that there is another practice it's called listening and actually yeah. trustworthy is that the word you use trustworthy trustworthy listening yes as a different type of It's not unrelated, to be sure, especially for mindfulness, Mm because you're in the moment, you're listening, you're aware, and you're alert, but it's a little bit different. And so the things you learn, we're at a spiritual level, but I bet they're at a practical level, too. Sure. I know that people endlessly talk about listening skills Mm -hmm. as a critical component for an effective leader. And a lot of people are not that good at it. In fact, the higher up you go, the more people want to hear from you, and they're afraid to say what they're really thinking, Mm. uh, which is Mm. really kind of... Um, a backward thing. But I'm wondering whether you have any tips or suggestions just for everyday people, whether it's in organizational life, family life, personal life, Mm -hmm. on how to be a more effective listener. Mm, Thank you for that question. Yeah. The one action item that I'd like to give anyone who's listening right now is to ask a vulnerable question once a day. 
And how do you do that? Okay, you, you look into the truth of your life right now and you find that place where you're a little uncertain about something mm -hmm. or where you're grinding on something or, or struggling through something. And it doesn't have to be super deep, but something that's real, you know, something that's vulnerable, something that's going to reveal a little bit more about who you are mm -hmm. as a human being. And see if you can find that question and then find someone. And they could be a perfect stranger mm -hmm. or they could be someone you think you know really well. And you could say, hey, I'm doing this thing that I think I'm excited about, but it's also kind of weird. Like I'm, it's, I'm, I'm asking one real question every day, or maybe it'll be once a week for you, but try to do every day, you know? And so you say, all right, so I'm wondering a lot about forgiveness these days because I'm going through something with a friend of mine mm -hmm. and I'm not going to go into the details of what it is, but it's bringing up a lot about, it's making me realize I don't, I don't know how to forgive this guy. Mm -hmm. or you share whatever that real thing is with you. You give them a little context. Yeah. Don't just say, hey, tell me about forgiveness. Say, hey, this is a little bit about who I am. This is a little bit about what I'm carrying. And what are your thoughts about forgiveness? You know, like, have you experienced something that you could connect with me on in this? Yeah. You know, so ask one real question a day. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is going to be scary. It's going to be uncomfortable. And that's the price of admission. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right, right. It, um, and it takes, you got to be confident. You got to yes. be... You have to have a level of security. Yeah. And it's okay if you flub it up. Yeah. It's all a part of the practice. It's okay if they say no or they look at you weird. Right. You're not weird. There, there are no grades. No uh, grades. You don't have to be perfect. Yeah. And just like for other forms of practice, such as meditation, yeah. mindfulness, yoga, yeah. you don't have to be great at it. It's yeah. the act of doing it where the yeah. value comes up. So action item, one real question a day. Yeah. We'll keep the doctor away, baby. <laughs> That's great. Andrew Forstoffel, thank you so much for sharing your views, your worldview, and your story with us on the SIDCAST. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the SIDCAST. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.